0: Welcome to the Big Time Talker Podcast. We're downloadable every Tuesday uh, at all the platforms, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your great podcast entertainment. The show is brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest virtual speakers bureau. Today's show is live in Las Vegas in the beautiful Golden Nugget uh, Ballroom. We're here for the National Conference of Personal Managers Hall of Fame induction And one of the inductees is Danny Goldberg. Danny's the president of Gold Village Entertainment, has been in the music business as a personal manager, record company president, a PR man, and a journalist since the late 60s. He also is a best-selling author of several books. Uh, Back in 1983, he was the founder and president of Gold Mountain Entertainment, and uh, his management clients have included Nirvana, Hole, Sonic Youth, Bonnie Raitt, the Allman Brothers, Ricky Lee, Jones, and more and uh, before that was CEO of Air America Radio for a year and uh, formed the independent label Artemis Records that he ran for six years. He also spent some time uh, with the Universal Music Group, was chairman and CEO of Mercury Records, which was the number one US label group uh, during his tenure there. And uh, he did pop and R&B and hip hop, country, jazz, rock and roll, uh, the list goes on and on. And earlier in his career, He formed and co-owned Modern Records, uh, which released Stevie Nicks' solo album, uh, Belladonna, which hit number one and launched her solo career. And as a youngster back in the day, Danny was vice president of Led Zeppelin's Swan Song Records and worked the band in their heyday. Danny Goldberg has also dipped into uh, films and television, was the executive producer of the soundtrack uh, for Miami Vice, music supervisor on a bunch of films, including Dirty Dancing, and I understand that no one puts Danny in a corner. Ladies and gentlemen, Danny Goldberg on The Big Time Talker.
1: Well, I feel I'm in a corner now.
0: All the answers have to be correct at this point. Thank you for being here. Uh, Danny and I had an opportunity to work together on a great project with his legacy artist, Steve Earle, um, back in my home state of West Virginia. And it, it was at that time that I realized that Danny had done so many things. Now, we, we're honoring Danny as a legendary artist manager. And by the way, his family is here. They're in, in the back at one of the reserve tables. So a round of applause for Danny's family. hey You've been a manager. You've been a label head, best-selling author, music journalist. Danny, is it that you've done all those things because you can't hold a job? Is that why you keep bouncing around?
1: It's because I'm old. So, <laughs> I, so I had to fill up 50 years with different things.
0: Well, let's roll it back, then, to the beginning. So, I will tell you this, though. Yeah?
1: My original idea was to be a manager. Uh, you know, when I, when I worked for Zeppelin, I saw Peter Grant, their manager, and the, the way he seemed to control any room that he was in. And uh, that was in my early 20s. And, and that was always, to me, my ideal role, because it was the person uh, closest to the artist. So I, I like all these other things, but, but uh, I, I did start out wanting to do exactly what I'm doing now.
0: As a young guy, and you're working for Led Zeppelin, the biggest rock and roll band in the world, Peter Grant had a, a reputation as a really tough manager. And I wonder what lessons you learned from him, good or bad, from Peter Grant, from Led Zeppelin.
1: Well, um, the good lesson was that he understood the power of artists uh, in terms of culturally and economically. and And, you know, he came along in England when the managers of the first group of artists that made it big in england the rolling stones the beatles and the who were all brilliant marketers and pr guys but not very good at business and those artists didn't make hardly any money the first five years of their career and he had kind of watched that and by the time led zeppelin started in 1969 um, he he um, had this philosophy of, of of being a tremendously strong advocate. So, for example, in the concert business, for years, the typical thing was 50% of the profits for the promoter and 50% for the artist. He demanded and got 90% for Zeppelin. And then the 90-10 deal became the normal deal for headliners. But, but, but he invented that. He was very aggressive with the labels. He wasn't intimidated by them. Uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure... Uh, Led zeppelin's biggest song was uh, stairway to heaven and uh, you know the the generic you know the kind of the knee-jerk attitude of the label was well, let's put it out as a single and 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 he he wouldn't let them do that and uh, with the idea of make them buy the album and I think that album is sold 28 million or something like that so he he was a uh, and and by the way that that um A song was on an album which is generally referred to as Led Zeppelin 4 because it didn't actually have any title and it didn't have the name of the band on the cover which completely freaked out the sales department of Atlantic but you know, he insisted on it and the band insisted on it and it turned out that the fans could figure out that it was the Led Zeppelin album without the name being on it so he, he was a great, great advocate for the artists only cared about what they thought and uh... so i often have him in the back of my mind you know as as sort of the role model in, in that respect uh... you know he had some bad habits that were unhealthy and you know those are ones that i wouldn't recommend to anybody you know <laughs> staying away from uh, certain kind of drugs is a better way of functioning in the world but he was he was <laughs> he was a great great manager i don't think there's a single british manager who came after him who wouldn't uh defer to him as their role model also. And and he, um, he was very nice to me when I was in my early 20s, when everybody else was terrified. Something about me fit his agenda, and I owe so much to him. I still get to talk about Led Zeppelin 50 years later.
0: Legendary manager Danny Goldberg, a guest on our Big Time Talker podcast, live in Las Vegas at the National Conference of Personal Managers, Hall of Fame induction. Um, even before Zeppelin, you were in your early 20s when you worked for Swan Song You covered a pretty big music event and were published for that. Tell us about that.
1: Well, my first job was as a clerk in the chart department of Billboard magazine. I I dropped out of college. I just needed a job so I could not have to live in my parents' apartment. And I didn't even know what Billboard was. Um, But it said magazine in the ad in the New York Times, and I figured that was more attractive than key punch operator, which is what (laughs) most of the other uh, help wanted ads were asking for at that time. And I discovered that it was uh, this trade magazine of the music business. I didn't know there was a music business. I just thought there were fans like me and like rock, you know, Bob Dylan. I didn't know there was a whole infrastructure in between until I got the billboard. And the original job was calling record stores because there were no barcodes then or computers and just manually writing down what the best-selling records were, and that was compiled, and that's what created the billboard charts. But there were people on the other end of the office that got to go to concerts for free, and all they had to do was write their opinions of the concert. So I had been a very uneven high school student and had some self-esteem issues, but I knew I could do that. And so I kept nagging them to let me um, do that, and when, and when there were things that none of the real writers wanted to cover, they would occasionally let me cover them. And the Woodstock Festival was one of those things. The the writers that really were the staff writers then were were very old, meaning they were in their 30s. And, <laughs> um, but culturally, there was a big divide between someone who was 30-something in 1969 and someone who was 19 and they had no interest whatsoever in going and you know to to the festival so so i got to cover the woodstock festival and that was my first uh, front page story and it's still if you google woodstock billboard you know it's still it's still up there so that was a uh, that was really uh, um, just a lucky break but it's something that i again get to talk about all these years later and i must say i really was so glad to be there i i, I was in a non drug phase of my life having gotten in and out of trouble when I was younger, but uh, you could just get high on the on the vibe of the crowd I think the Woodstock movie is pretty good in terms of representing the essence of what it felt like to be there and I wrote a very rhapsodic uh, review of it and they published it you know they they let me they let me be a cheerleader for the hippie culture
0: you talked about being a fan of music first before you got into this industry are you still a fan of the music do you still hear something and go man that's fantastic
1: <laughs> well it's I still listen to music because I like it, but what i 'll listen to usually is some older artists you know i don 't being in the music business kind of ruined music a little bit for me you know it It, it, it became business where I started hearing something on the radio and figured out who 's the manager who 's the label you know why didn 't I get a meeting with them? Why did they get that you know, slots kind of a thing but 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 I still get very excited you know as you said i 've worked with Earle for a long time and I, I've seen hundreds of his shows, and, and I, I still love them. I have a band called the Waterboys, an Irish band I just saw in London last week and was really inspired by the show. But um, I don't have the same kind of comprehensive connection to the musical culture I did when I was young. It's, it's more just kind of hit and miss. You had a,
0: a company for a long time called Cold Mountain Entertainment, and now you have Gold Village Entertainment.
1: You, you so think you, it's connected to my name being Goldberg?
0: I, I'm thinking you just, you're just you not moving mountains anymore, I think. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I lost control of that name. I like the name Gold Mountain because that's what Goldberg means. But uh, I was living in Greenwich Village when I started this one, so I called it Gold Village.
0: You also, as you uh, we talked about earlier, was the, the head of several record labels. And you're in a room now with a lot of managers, some who do music, some who do you know comedy and movies and television. I wonder when you were head of labels, you you worked obviously with probably dozens, hundreds of managers maybe. Yeah. What are the the qualities from the other side of the desk of a great manager to you, a great artist manager, great talent manager?
1: Oh, well, firstly, I mean, the record business I got to work in in the late 90s and early aughts is, is, is so different from today's record business. Obviously, there was no streaming then. And there were these things called record stores, but um, you know, I think um, I, I think that managers, what you looked for as a label, was somebody that um, could think logically, you know, uh, you know, uh, some uh, and 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 was uh, interested in helping you sell <laughs> records. You know, now there were things that I, when I was on the label side, might want that that that. The artist or the manager might not want to do I mean I remember there was a band on Mercury we got it through the Capricorn label called 311 and they're great rock band had a couple of big records and MTV wanted them to do some event it would have been a favor to them to help influence some cable system in Denver, and MTV was very good about returning favors. It was really you did them a favor, they do you a favor, and and three eleven <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't do it. I'm still annoyed by that. I, <laughs> I I lost a favor, and I never looked at that manager the same way because I thought he wimped out in terms of explain. And the band also lost their privilege status with. With MTV, but that's just a weird example. I don't know. I think I think no matter whether you're looking at it from the point of view of a label or a concert promoter, or an agent or a lawyer, managers are. You want people that tell the truth and that uh, and that are smart. You know, I mean, there's no there's no one-line magic formula to describe it. I know who I think some of the great managers are.
0: Well, let's drop a few names.
1: Well, I think certainly John Landau and the job he's done for Bruce Springsteen has to has to be at the top of a list. I mean, that's got. The, I mean, he's one of the greatest artists ever, but that's one of the greatest managed careers. Uh, somebody a little less famous, Joan Jett has a manager named Kenny C-Laguna Laguna that yeah. I think has done an extraordinary job over the decades for her in terms of owning the masters and reinventing her uh, many times. I mean, she's an incredible artist, but he's also been an incredible managers. So those are always kind of the two names that pop into my mind first when people ask me about, uh, uh, about g- people that are still in the, in the, in the business, but there are, there are a lot of great ones.
0: You mentioned Springsteen, and we talked earlier in one of the other uh, sessions here at the National Conference Personal Managers meeting about counseling clients on what to say and what not to say, and to stay away from controversial topics for obvious reasons, to stay away from politics. For obvious reasons.
1: No, that's not
0: you, That's not been my approach. You don't do that. You <laughs> didn't do that. And a lot of your artists don't do that. What the hell is wrong with you?
1: Well, first of all, I don't know how everyone else at this conference feels, but I in the, in the rock and roll business, the part of show business where I've made my living mostly, um, the artists are the boss. The word manager, I always tell people, a little deceptive. You know, um, <laughs> you know, valet maybe is a better <laughs> word, but but um, but you know, I think every artist to use the modern parlance has their own brand, and it depends on what they represent to their audience, whether or not it's appropriate for them to weigh in on controversial subjects or not. I mean, to give an extreme example, a band like Rage Against the Machine, their whole brand was. Kind of political radicalism, so if they opted out of a controversy it would irritate their fans on the other hand, uh, there are artists uh, Dolly Parton I think who to me is just one of the greatest living artists uh, has fans who have so many different points of view that I think she's just walked an incredibly intelligent line of of making sure not to lose any parts of her audience so you know someone who could work with Jane Fonda and be close friends with her and on the other hand uh you know a lot of her fans are you know probably not Jane Fonda fans sure so so I I think it's really about understanding the brand of an artist and then giving them advice relative to what they want to accomplish in the world assuming they ask for advice
0: do you ever try to steer them in one way or another on those sorts of things
1: very rarely. Um, but, you know, uh, you try to um, drop hints so it becomes uh, their idea.
0: <laughs> Lots of knowing, nodding, and smiles in the audience from the uh, National Conference personal managers. Um, Danny Goldberg is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast, brought to you by Speaker Match. Danny, for a time, you were the manager of arguably the biggest rock band in the world, Nirvana. Uh, And you write about that in uh, your book, which was a a national bestseller called Serving the Servant. We have a copy of that out in the audience right
1: now, as a matter of fact. Yes, it was a national bestseller in Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you. I'm proud of it.
0: Uh, Well, for those of us who haven't read that book, I'm sure you cover a lot of this in the book. What level was Nirvana at when you were introduced to them? And now sort of looking back on it in the looking glass, how much did you really have to do with their ascension and their leap into superstardom
1: well i was there <laughs>
0: <laughs> I there to watch <laughs> what was it like first of all what level were they at when you met them and then take us through that yeah, ride yeah
1: i was um i i i, I had um uh, what were then Older clients and what was then the mainstream business. You mentioned some of them before: Almond Brothers, Bonnie Raitt, Ricky Lee, and and I, I I knew there was this new generation of of rock artists that were emerging. People some it later became called alternative, and people would call it postmodern. And a lot of it emanated from punk uh, culture, the American punk culture, right? Not and more the 80s American punk pol- culture than the not the 70s CBGBs punk culture and and um <laughs> not to and, put too fine a line and I, I well it was very serious matter to the artists and to the fanzines and to the people in the in the business that cared about these artists so i had to learn these distinctions um so um we, we were lucky enough to get sonic youth as a client they they were never became a big superstar but they were extremely influential in the alternative punk subculture, and Thurston Moore, who was the guitarist of that band, was, I thought, the smartest kind of curator of that music at that time. He's still a very, very smart guy. Just published a memoir, which I just downloaded, and I bet it's great. Uh, And uh, he told me that Nirvana was the best band, in his opinion, that had opened. They used to pick different uh, up-and-coming bands to open for them. So Nirvana had put out one record. It It was on the indie label Sub Pop, uh and it, which was based in Seattle and it sold i think around 30,000 records which was a pretty good sales for 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 a uh, uh, a punk band i think they made the record literally for less than $1,000 in one day and um and 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 they it, it enabled them to uh, tour europe and to get some press in those fanzines and to be played on some of the college radio stations that were the main outlet for this kind of neo punk music uh they hadn't made any money but it was it was a culture that the major labels were starting to pay attention to um, and um, so they'd had that one record that did 30,000 the next record after they got involved with me was was nevermind which is sold i think 20 million so it was a big extraordinary breakthrough uh but you know kurt cobain was a real-life genius he wrote those songs he sung them he played lead guitar he made all the decisions he designed the artwork he did he storyboarded the videos and um i didn't know that it was going to be anywhere as big as it became nobody did but i knew it was going to be bigger than sonic youth i knew i knew it was gonna that his voice had an accessibility to it that he wrote choruses that you could hum but they still had that kind of cultural uh, uh integrity of the punk world and there were very few artists that could combine those things so it happened very fast after after the record came out and it was extremely uh, exciting to to be part of it uh it 's always impossible to say if if they'd had a different manager would they have still been successful definitely but i I felt i did a, me and my partner john silva I thought we we, we, we did a job i'm 'm proud of but but it was when you get if you 're lucky enough to be involved with somebody like that you just you Just hold on to them and don't let them go.
0: So you heard that first record that was done in a day for a week for thirty thousand uh, sold thirty thousand copies. Did you know immediately when you heard that this is the one or was oh, it Thurston Moore? Definitely,
1: definitely not. Uh, it just sounded like noise to me. I just it was another one of those loud bands. You know, later on I went back and understood some of the, what people liked about it. No, I trusted the guy from Sonic Youth. That yeah. I, I, I I was about. Believing in someone else's opinion and then about five or six months later when I saw them live and I saw him connect with an audience on stage, that's when, the, that's when I realized that I'd gotten very lucky and, 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 and that's when I realized how special he was. But when I first heard that indie record, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have known that they were going to have that kind of career, no.
0: As a manager who wants to sign somebody, this could be very valuable for our folks. How did, how did you make that approach? them Uh,
1: well they they, you know we both uh it it was really about sonic youth they they were friends with sonic youth they looked up to them they toured with them in europe and uh, so the same way i trusted thurston when it came to the idea of yeah do you want this band because john who is younger than me and today is an extremely successful manager he has the foo fighters for example but at that time, he was just starting to He liked them, but it was up to me if we were going to do it or not. So I was talked into it by Thurston, and I think Thurston then talked to Nirvana and said, look, these guys have been good for us. We came out of the alternative world. They respect their art- artistry, but they've helped us deal with the label. So, uh, you, know, we, we, uh, y- y- you know, it was really a marriage made by a third party in a way, and we had one meeting, and the next day we, 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 we were the manager. Again, it was several months before I realized what a big deal it was to have them. But uh, it just fell into place. Sometimes it's that way. Sometimes you have 10 meetings and you don't get them. You know, it's just there's so many different things with with trying to manage artists. But in that case, it just fell into place very quickly.
0: I was programming radio in 1991 when Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, and there was a lot of pushback from broadcasters to that song. And if, if you're old enough to remember what it was like at that time, that song sounded completely different than anything else on What the was
1: the format of the station that you it's were? a at.
0: top 40 radio station.
1: Oh yeah, so that would have been uh, And so
0: there's, you know, Bell Biv DeVoe and there's Whitney Houston and then there's this really crunchy rock song that they're trying to get to happen and I wonder if you remember was there was there something that told you at some point in that journey that you said happened really fast, that this is going to break through? Like, did you hear it on Z100 New York, or did you see the video, or was there a thing that you went, well, here the, we go? Well,
1: well, the video was very important, because MTV was so powerful then. You know, that was like the, the, the national music medium, the likes of which we've never seen before or after. So, um, and that, that video uh, came out about four or five weeks after the song first went on the college and alternative radio stations and it was uh, it was in heavy rotation within two weeks so we knew we had a monster because of mtv that was the most important radio station to me was mtv right, sure. by a mile but i did have this kind of greed for them to to be as big as possible and i remember i spoke to the head of top 40 promotion at geffen I think his name is Steve Levitt was the guy's name. About about I said, look, isn't there a station in Seattle somewhere where we could test this thing? And he was like, dude, you know, top forty is Paula Abdul. Why are you bothering me with this? And then uh, there was a woman who maybe you've come across named Leslie Fram.
0: Leslie Fram, yeah.
1: Who was who was at the station in Atlanta?
0: Ninety nine X. Ninety
1: nine X. And they were experimenting with the top forty format, but trying to lean a little bit more rock and she played it and it and it worked for them and so then then it became legitimized by les by, by 99x and uh, i think there was a station in houston krbe which was which was and, and and then when it was doing well for those two stations then the top 40 guy changed his tune and went for it and it became a wasn't a number 1 pop song but it was top 10 pop and it was number 1 rock number one, uh, it went to number one on some metal charts also Uh, so it was a multi-format hit and it became also an international hit, it was number one like in 15 or 20 countries I think but Leslie Fram who today is at the CMT uh, was the person who took the plunge in, in in the top 40 area that legitimized it.
0: And coincidentally Leslie Fram who is a great champion of all music, I took a video for my emerging country artist to her six months ago The girl has never had a hit, had no visibility. And Leslie Fram said, I like this, and put it on CMT. So she is still doing that. So Leslie, if you're listening, we love you. One more question about Nirvana, um, because as fast as it happened, that ended far too quickly. Um, And we talked in a panel yesterday at the National Conference of Personal Managers about as managers trying to anticipate when things are going to go sideways with our clients in a whole bunch of different ways. And I wonder, as much as you're comfortable with, if you can talk to us about how you as a manager at that time and as someone who was a friend of Kurt Cobain got through that that week that he died.
1: Well, you know, what choice do you have? You have to get through these things. Um, I don't really know how to answer that exact question. Um, I can say this. We knew that he had a problem with heroin uh, by... January of '92, which was kind of the week the album went to number one. Nevermind went to number one. It was also the week they did Saturday Night Live, which was um, a big deal for somebody from the punk s- subculture. I, uh, very, I think they were first or second. Anyway, he was totally wasted at that time, and we realized that you know there'd been rumors for the previous few weeks, and you hope they're not true. And so we knew he had a drug problem, and we were always. When I say we, I mean my ex-partner, and myself, and some yeah. of the other people that were close to him, you know, uh, people at the label and others, and, uh, you know, for the next couple of years, it was in and out of rehab. Uh, I'm a huge believer in the 12-step program. Uh, many people very, very close to me uh, have uh, had their lives saved by it. Uh, it's the one thing I know to tell people. To, to do, but the problem is it doesn't work for everybody, and it didn't, it, Kurt just didn't connect with it, so all of the other things were just band-aids, and, you know, I don't think there's any way of separating out his problem with drugs from his uh, suicide, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just a heartbreaking, tragic thing. I don't have any magical advice about it. I, I write about it the best I can in the book that you mentioned, but, uh, anyone who's had someone in their family who's killed themselves, uh, knows how, uh, mysteriously horrible it is or horribly mysterious
0: if you would have known that he had a drug problem would you have signed him
1: probably not i certainly try to avoid that now people often ask me about a list of things to avoid i mean it's just it's almost impossible to work constructively with an alcoholic or drug addict but if someone you love and care about develops these problems in the context of an existing relationship it's a whole other it's a whole other thing but if someone at the outset exhibits that, I, I, I would avoid it. And I think I would have avoided it then too. You know, There was no evidence of it when we first met.
0: Danny Goldberg is our guest at the National Conference Personal Managers Personal Managers Interchange. He's being inducted into the Hall of Fame. You've had several long-term clients uh, that have been with you for a long time, including one that you introduced me to, Grammy winner Steve Earle. Uh, you've had Steve for how long?
1: Well, I've worked with him for 24 years. When I started the company I have now, which was, I I, man, the years go by uh, too quickly, uh, in my opinion. But um, I think that was 2006, so I guess it's 18 years I've been his manager. But then for the six years before that, he was on a label that I had started called Artemis, and that's where he won uh, the first two of his Grammys. But because that was a small label we had a very close personal relationship. When I was at the big labels, I couldn't have close relationships with the artists because there were so many of them and I had so many people working for me. But so, so it's 24 years that we've worked together and, uh, 18, I've managed them and, uh, I still, uh, uh, you know, still work with him and, you know, he's a big deal in my life, both personally and professionally.
0: How do you make it work for a long time like that?
1: Oh, definitely not to not to uh, have a cliche, but definitely one day at a time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you certainly can't ever. You got to do. The, you got to suit up and show up every day, and 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 do whatever needs needs to be done. It's just some people uh, you connect with better. There are some great stories of, of long relationships. Uh, you know, Mark Spector, a good friend of mine, managed Joan Baez for about 30 years till she retired, and. Kenny Laguna and Landau example, and then there are other examples of artists who go through, you know, six managers in 15 years. It's just, it, it, there's no match formula to it, but I, uh, as I've gotten older and do this in a little more personal boutique-ish way, I find that the relationships are longer. I think if you're in real personal touch, is a different thing than if you've got a big company and you're delegating it and you're only having a, two or three meetings a year. So. Uh, but but you know no two artists are the same, so no two artist manager relationships are the same.
0: When you run into conflicts, how do you work through those? And, and eventually you said the artist drives the bus, right?
1: Oh this duh, um, what 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 what, what <laughs> do you mean? What do you mean by a conflict?
0: Well, let's say there's a disagreement. You want the artist to do something, and they're not feeling it.
1: Then you do what they want. Fair enough. They're the boss. You work for them. It's a service relationship. I mean, you can quit. If you think it's immoral or self-destructive, or you do what they want, those are your choices.
0: And if they make a bad decision?
1: You pretend that they didn't do it and that it happened (laughs) some other way. (laughs) (laughs) That somebody else screwed up, you know.
0: I love it. One of your books, one of Danny Goldberg's books is called Bumping into Genius, which I love the title of that book. Geniuses, plural. That's right, geniuses. And and you have bumped into a bunch of geniuses. So I, I'm going to throw out some names, and I want you to give me a word or a phrase or something about them when I throw it out there. And so let's start with Stevie Nicks. Oh,
1: I just love her so much. Oh, my God. You know, uh, she's um, she deserves her success as much as anyone ever did. I mean, again... She wrote Dreams, the lyrics and the music. She wrote Rhiannon, the lyrics and the music. She wrote Landslide, the lyrics and the music. So just, let's start as a songwriter. Incredible songwriter and innovative. Those are all hits, but yet they're all weird in a totally distinctive way. And then obviously she's got that signature voice. You know it's her right away. But she's also somebody that's very generous to the people around her uh... you know uh... i i'm I'm so glad i got to work with her and and i'm so glad that she's done so well over such a long period of time she's she became uh... you know she's become kind of an iconic figure i think especially to a lot of women who get into the business because of having done things completely on her own terms she had her own fashion sense her own notion of how she was going to do things and uh... You know, I, I just can't say enough good things about Stevie Nicks.
0: You took a shot at her as a solo artist, though. Well, was- it
1: wasn't that hard to do. I mean, she was in Fleetwood Mac when they had the biggest album of the year. I mean, Rumors was number one for 39 weeks in a row uh, when I met her, uh, and, or, 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 or was halfway through those 39 weeks. She was dating a good friend of mine, Paul Fishkin, who was my partner in Modern Records. And uh, it was just a freaky situation because, she, you know, Fleetwood Mac had been around for so long, uh, before Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham joined in the in the uh, in the, in the mid '70s, they'd been around for close to a decade, and they were a British blues band was kind of their brand, and they're a very good one. They had some great versions of Fleetwood Mac. My favorite being the one when Peter Green was the lead guitar player. They'd see him at the Fillmore and so on. But so. Nick Fleetwood and John McVie controlled the band. That's why it was called Fleetwood Mac. And they made all the decisions. And Stevie and Lindsey were the newcomers to the band. And she didn't have power in the dynamic of the group uh, because she was the newcomer. Uh, and then very, very quickly on the first album that they were on, her song Rhiannon became this big hit. So suddenly she's on TV and she's this star. But she still didn't control a lot of things. For example, uh, how many of her songs were on an album. That's always a bone of contention when you have uh, multiple writers on an album, not only in terms of the ego and self-esteem that comes with writing a song, but money. You know? And she had this song that she wrote called Silver Springs that they wouldn't put on rumors because they wanted to have enough other people's songs on there. And she, and she was still pissed off about it when I met her and i re- and then she played all these other songs that she'd written and i realized it was kind of like when you see that beatles movie get back and you realize how many great songs george harrison had that the beatles wouldn't do and how that's why his first solo album was so amazingly successful and it was the same with her so the other dynamic was that warner brothers records had had fleetwood mac for Six seven albums. They kept having different guitar players all the time. Stevie only got to be in the band because she was with Lindsey. They really were hiring a guitar player, and he said, "You got to take my girlfriend because who sings? Because we're, you know, we're a duo. They'd made one duo album called Buckingham Nicks, and um, you know, so Warner Brothers didn't think they needed to have a. You know, usually in a in a group in a band contract." There's, there's something called a leaving member clause. So if, you, if, if, if you're assigned to Atlantic Records as a member of uh, you know Zeppelin or ACDC or something and you leave, the contract still applies to you. Stevie and Lindsay were never asked to sign leaving member clauses because Warner Brothers never th- didn't think they had any particular value until it was too late. So not only was she the lead singer and songwriter of dreams and Rhiannon, she was available as a solo artist, you know, So that was a a mouthwatering business opportunity combined with the fact that I just really got along with her. And, uh, you know, so it it was just it it was really not me taking a shot on her. It was her taking a shot on me. Anybody would have wanted to work with Stevie Nicks.
0: What about the Allman Brothers?
1: Well, I I got them in, in 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 a middle period of their career, uh, but I'm so thrilled I got to work with them for a few years. They'd broken up, and uh, um, uh, you know, uh, Dicky Betts, uh, I knew slightly because <laughs> I had managed the music career of Don Johnson, not the most lucrative part of his career. But <laughs> I was I was pretty cold at the period, and just being able to drop his name got some of my phone calls returned. That's when Miami Vice was the big, big, big show. Sure. And um, and and then their agent Johnny Podell Uh, a guy named Johnny Podell, legendary character. I mean, if there was a Hall of Fame for agents, he would certainly be in it, Um, who who, um, who would work with them. He worked with them for their entire career. And he said, look, you're the guy that could get Dickie and Greg back together. So he dispatched me to meet with each of them and they got back together again. And I got to manage them for three years. They didn't have any of their most famous records come out then, but their live shows were incredible. And I particularly became enamored with the brilliance of Dickie Betts. You know, he later was pushed out of the group because they all got sober and he didn't, I understand. And they were still great without him. But he wrote a lot of that music, Blue Sky and Melissa. He he, he knew, he's still alive. I mean, he just, uh, th- th- but he knew jazz, he knew classical. You know, you'd look at him and he looked like a biker and he had all these tattoos and always had a carrying a knife and, you know, kind of intimidating kind of a character. But... What a brilliant guy! Uh, and the uh, the band is just one of the great, great bands. So I'm certainly not an important part of their history, but I'm very, very glad that they were part of my history.
0: Bonnie but I, Raitt. And I did, I
1: did get to see their last. They're nice enough. I always stayed in touch. I did go to see their last show at the Beacon, at, at the yeah. Beacon, which was really fantastic.
0: Fantastic, Bonnie Raitt.
1: Well, I, I'm just so glad I got to work with her. She was uh, at a low point uh, when I when I. Um, started managing her myself I had a partner then involved with Bonnie named Ron Stone who's who's certainly we did this together it was the same company Gold Mountain but there were different people that I work with on different artists and um, I've been involved talking of politics you know uh, with 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 a I I co-produced and co-directed a movie called No Nukes that came out in 1980 that starred Springsteen it was based on concerts that had been organized uh, a lot by jackson brown and and graham nash of course we still in nash and it the idea was to uh, stop the spread of nuclear power on the theory that it was environmental bad and people could get cancer and there could be accidents and stuff so bonnie was part of that and we got to be kind of friendly and then i just was such a fan of hers and actually did pitch her and say please let me manage you. This is because her career had been in a downward spiral, and she was just being dropped by uh, Warner Brothers. You know, uh, and that was um, she was uh, 39, I think, and the specter of turning 40 was terrifying. And I just believe she was a great singer. I didn't know how lucky we were going to get. The fr- she 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 got um, you know really got herself together and lost weight and got sober. I mean, this is all stuff she said publicly. You know, and. Um, and I remember hearing that song, Nick of Time, and just it just literally I'm talking about watching her parents' age, and it was just such a beautiful song. She wrote very, very few songs. Bonnie's main career has been as an interpret of other people's songs, but she did write that song. Anyway, we were able to get her a deal. Fourteen labels passed, but Capitol Records said yes, and, uh, and that album was Nick of Time, and she went, again, from being dropped by Warners to winning... Uh, Alma, the year Grammy, and you know, it was just uh, you know, incredible. One of my regrets, I, you know, I left that company to go work for big record companies, like you said, and got to be president, and it was a, it was a, that was what I needed to do with my career at that time. But uh, walking away from being her manager was was uh, uh, very bittersweet, you know, because it was a very special uh, artist to be involved with, and what an incredible, uh, you know, that was. Uh, what 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 year was was nick of time? I mean, eighty nine or, you know, I mean, it's like she she hasn't uh, made a false step in the last uh, thirty years since then, you know.
0: And that's another record that came when it came out. It sounded like nothing else on the radio, and yet. Well, that was not. We through. didn't
1: have any radio hits on, unlike "Smells Like Teen Spirit," which we did eventually have a radio hit with there was a, there was a, the first track on Nick of time was called thing called love. And that got played on what were then called rock stations, right? You know, which were waning in popularity, but like in New York, it was WNEW FM. That was always kind of her base. And, um, we really couldn't get any of the, um, uh, adult contemporary stations or, uh, certainly no pop stations to, to, go near Bonnie Raitt. But MTV again had just started the VH one channel. And VH1 has gone through so many iterations, but the first couple of years, they were, they were uh, today would be called an Americana station. They were playing kind of uh, uh, artists for a, a little softer, a little older audience, very differentiated from the MTV thing. And, and she just, um, the first video uh, that, that we did from that, which was Thing Called Love by John Hyatt, and it was, uh, Dennis Quaid was in the video. They just played it constantly. And so, uh, and then and then she was like a core artist. So we had three videos in a row that got good play on VH1, but still very limited. We never had a top 20 uh, track in any radio format on that album. And it had just gotten to gold the week before the Grammys, which was an incredible success, because the previous record had stopped at about 70,000. It's so funny using these numbers now, because in the streaming world, you know... You sell 10,000 copies, you're doing great, but yep. you're looking at a billion streams, so it's a totally different math. But, um, and then she won all the Grammys, and that album ended up selling 4 million records, but it never had a radio hit on it. It was VH1, Press, and the Grammys.
0: Interesting, interesting. There's a, a long list, we'll never get to all of them, the Springsteen, Ricky Lee Jones, but I do have to ask you about what it was like managing Courtney Love and Hole.
1: Well, I like Courtney. You know, she's a complicated person and if you get her on a bad day it's not that great. But um I I um I got close to Kurt. You know, again, when we took on Nirvana, the idea was that John would do the day to day and I had you know, at that time I had a bigger company than I have now. I think we had thirty people or something and and then he fell in love with Courtney and everybody around the band didn't like her and I just knew he was in love. So I, I asked him, she was looking for a manager then, and I said, would, would you want me to manage whole? And he said, oh, that would be so awesome. And he felt it was kind of validating him. And that's really where my personal connection to him came. And I did it, to be honest with you, initially for kind of manipulative reasons on the theory that you really don't want the wife of your big star being managed by somebody else. But, um, but then she did this song, um, I went with her to a BBC session, in London, and she did this song Doll Parts, and it was the same thing where I said, oh my God, I got lucky again. She's much better than I realized. It was such a brilliant song. And I just think she's a great, great artist. I think she's she's somebody that had some self-destructive issues that limited her amount of success, but the quality of those first few albums... As I think uh, I think they're really uh, in the pantheon of great rock albums, and she's been a big influence on other artists. and she's she's on a good day. She's one of my favorite people. I'm very grateful to her. She nice enough to talk to me for the book, and I, I just wish her the best, although I've not been in as close touch with her the last decade as I was you know, back in the day.
0: That's our friend Danny Goldberg being inducted to the National Conference of Personal Managers Hall of Fame tonight. For the Big Time Talker Podcast, I'm Burke Allen, live in Las Vegas. Thanks for listening. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.